0: A number of years ago, Alan and I, we bought our first home. We bought it in Corinth. And we had never actually set foot on the property. We saw a picture and we bought it. And it wasn't until we showed up to move in that as I entered the house, all of a sudden, the house shook. And there was this intense rumbling. And this big train just passed right in the backyard of the house. And I didn't realize was a train track basically in my backyard I wondered am I gonna ha- do I have a mortgage on this property am I gonna be have to, able to live with this train but incredibly after two or three re- weeks I got used to it and didn't even notice it anymore sometimes I drive to church and I'm so used to come to church that I arrived to the parking lot and I only remember any of the drive from my home to when I got here. I just go on autopilot. Sometimes I go in a room in my house to get something, and when I get in that room, I've forgotten why I went there. So to make myself feel better, I do something else before I leave the room. Sometimes you and I can arrive to worship and not be quite sure why we're here or what we're doing when we get here. And we may not have clear our purpose and why it's so significant that you and I gather together on the Lord's day as the people of God. And we could say a number of things that are very good things. I mean, we're here to ascribe worth to God. That's what worship is, to to praise God, to hear a sermon, to be encouraged with the gospel, to evangelize. All of those are aspects of what we're here to do, but if we follow the contours of Scripture, we can say something even more clear about what we do in our corporate public worship together. And what Scripture indicates as we gather together is that you and I are here to renew our covenant with God, that we have the blessing of renewing covenant with God. If if you recall, the title of this series, which I don't tire of mentioning, is Redeemed for Relationship. And that's so uplifting for us because all that effort God put into meeting Israel in bondage and slavery in Egypt and rescuing them and bringing them to the mountain, all that effort, all that was involved in that, that God exerted on behalf of his people was because he wanted relationship with them. And do you today realize that God wants you? in relationship with Himself, even more than what is presented in Exodus, because that's a faint reflection of the true Exodus, which the Son of God accomplished at the cross when He shed His blood on your behalf. And it's not just God in a general way wants a people, it's that God in a particular way wants you In fellowship with you in fact Jesus says he calls you by name which means he knows your histories your needs your difficulties your sin patterns your gifting he wants you in fellowship with himself and so we look at Exodus and God gave Moses this sign right when he called him to go to Egypt And God said in Exodus 3, this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve me on this mountain. At first blush, that sign isn't very encouraging because Moses has to do a lot of stuff before he'll be assured that God indeed did send him, which is oftentimes the way God works in our lives. But the reassurance he needed when he was in the middle of nowhere at a mountain in the middle of the desert to know, oh, yeah, God said he was going to bring us here. Why? He wanted to bring us to the place where we could worship him at this mountain. But this first public, fully developed worship service has a particular focus. It forms the basic pattern and purpose for all subsequent worship. In Scripture. And the purpose of this first worship service is that Israel is going to renew their covenant with God. In a real important way, you and I are always renewing our covenant with God because you and I are always putting our faith in Jesus and repenting of sin. And you and I have our own private worship in our own homes by ourselves. And all that is crucial. In fact, it's very difficult to fully experience Lord's Day worship if we're not worshiping God in private. However, all the means of grace God gives us that we can avail ourselves of in private are especially given to us for our public social worship And Scripture indicates that they have even greater efficacy when you and I bond together and engage in them as God's people. James Batterman, 19th century, said this way, "...the elements of worship are especially given to us for public rather than private worship. Even we are to engage in some of them individually, they convey greater blessing to us when we make use of them in social corporate worship." Let me emphasize just a little bit more the the importance of worship itself. So the Supreme Court in the Obergefell decision in 2015 codified a subjective view of what it means to be a human being. They actually wrote it in the decision. To be a human being, the decision says, is to have liberty to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life, without compulsion from the state. Essentially what it's saying then is to be human is to be able to express yourself in any way you want to. So if you're keeping me from expressing myself in a way I want to, then you're depriving me of my personhood. If you follow this logically, this is nothing short of dangerous, that I, that I can't be limited in the way I want to express myself. It's a subjective view of personhood, not an objective view. But the Scripture is a, gives a radically different view of what a person is. And a person is an image-bearer of God. It's not subjective based on my feelings. It's objective. It's oriented towards God Himself. An image-bearer of God is designed to worship the ultimate, to worship God. It's not self-focused, but God-focused. We are created with the need to worship God. And we need to think this out well in how we worship and why and what we do when we come together for worship. So our Lord's Day worship services are extremely important. Therefore, it's imperative to think through what we're doing and why we're doing it. So I want to put before you again that in the contours of Scripture, what grows out of the worship services we see in Scripture is that They're designed for a particular purpose that we accomplish on the Lord's day together to renew our covenant with God together. Oftentimes we think of various elements of worship and that's how the Westminster Confession speaks. You know, prayer and preaching and the sacraments, which is all incredibly important. What we don't hear there is how we organize those together and what is our goal through them. But Scripture seems to indicate that for us, that Scripture's telling us, when you gather together on the Lord's Day, you're renewing covenant with me. And I just love that. It makes me have a higher sense of the significance of our gatherings together. In fact, it gives me a sense that when we step out on Monday morning, we're stepping out in a very strong place. a renewed covenant. I belong to God. So God adapted the current ancient Near Eastern covenant treaty structure to give shape to the personal relationship we have with Him. And we like to speak about our personal relationship with God, and that's very important, very important. It's just that we have personal relationships to varying degrees with a host of people, so what do we mean? The covenant tells us that our personal relationship with God has a certain formality to it, a certain structure to it. It's solid. The best reflection, of course, is the marriage that reflects the covenant God makes with us. God adapts this structure also to give shape to our greatest expression of personal relationship with Him, and that is our corporate worship service. So the New Testament doesn't develop an order. We get that from the Old Testament, and particularly from this first full worship service given in Exodus 19 through 24, where we see Israel, God calling them into His presence to renew covenant with Himself. So I want to read Exodus chapter 24, but really we're going to look through 19 through 24. But if you haven't read chapter 24 of Exodus lately, it's just a, it's just a marvelous Chapter. It's the high point of this worship service. Let's look at it together. Exodus 24. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near. And the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone, which with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction... So Moses rose, rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, "'Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them.' Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days." And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And the grass withers, flowers fade. And this good word endures forever. It's very significant for you in totally different circumstances even today. So what is a covenant? Um, It's a a full arrangement, so we can look at it different ways, but two definitions I really like. One is that it's a sacred relationship established by God in which God belongs to His people, and His people belong to God. You belong to Him. God belongs to you in covenant. Second definition is it's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Now, what's the deal about a bond in blood, sovereignly administered? Well, it's a bond. That means it's an inviolable relationship, meaning never to be broken relationship. It's in blood, meaning it's a matter of life and death. It's not just a casual relationship, ultimate significance. And it's sovereignly administered, meaning God takes the initiative and sets the Terms. It's an initiative of grace. So in the ancient Near East, there was a regular practice. A great king, a powerful king, would make a covenant, a treaty with a lesser king. And in this covenant, the great king would do various things to make this treaty. And the interesting thing is God takes over this custom But he really explodes it because the gospel is so much richer and deeper than any other arrangement. But this is the basics of it. In this treaty, the the great king would establish his lordship. Second, the great king would recount his history of benevolence towards the lesser king. Third, he'd set forth the stipulations of the covenant. Fourth, he'd declare blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience around a sacrificial ritual. And fifth, the two parties would share a fellowship meal together. In that way, they cut a covenant with each other. So we basically follow this format in our worship services. One way we can talk about it is a worship service is a reenactment of the gospel. It's God, man, Christ, faith. We have a call to worship, to come into God's presence. We recognize we're undone, man, we confess our sins. We speak Christ in the sermon, and then we respond to it with faith. It's a reenactment of the gospel. But as we follow the contours of Scripture, another beautiful way, which is even more developed, is we're here to renew our covenant with God. So let's look at how those five aspects of a covenant renewal work into or, 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 or grow out of our text today and then impact our service. So first, in Exodus 19 through 24, we see God is the ultimate great king who establishes his lordship in various ways. And so there's a various ways in chapter 19 that God does that as he opens up this worship service. One of the ways is in verse three to six. First, God says, I brought you on eagle's wings and brought you here. Like I was in control of all of it. And then he says, if you will obey me, then you will be my treasured possession, my my royal priesthood, my kingdom of priests. The sense is not that you obey me to get into a relationship with me, God's already redeemed them by grace and brought them here. The sense is, if you demonstrate your faith in me, through your obedience, you'll experience the richness of my presence with you in our covenant relationship together. Another way he shows his lordship is that over and over again in chapter 19, we read that God calls the people into worship. And so chapter uh, 19, verse 13, for example, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come uh, up to the mountain. And then in 16 through 18, all that actually happens On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. God calls them into worship. This glorious God commands them to stand before His presence at the foot of the mountain. Third, we notice that God sets limits to His worship. And so, for example, in verse 12, God says, you better not touch the mountain. You can stand at the foot of the mountain. God is sovereign over their limits. And then fourth, what comes out in this chapter is that Israel is to consecrate themselves. Three times it says, consecrate yourselves. Verse 14, that says it. Then uh, verse, four, uh, yeah, the, verse 14 says it this way. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. Now, what's the deal with that? Well, as God commands us into His presence, this holy God, manifest in fire... They recognize their sin, and they confess their sin before them, before Him and wash their garments. And that washing their garments is a sweet image for us. It means they've confessed their sins and received forgiveness, and now they can stand in God's presence. And all this is reflected in our own contour of our worship services as God calls us into worship. We recognize we're undone before Him. We confess our sins and receive his forgiveness in the confession and comfort of the gospel. Well, the next point is that then we see that the great king recounts his benevolence to Israel. Um, He's already done that in chapter 19, verse 4, when he says, I brought you on eagle's wings. But then we see that in a real strong way in chapter 20, verse 2. And that's not just a a formal introduction. It's real important. And so in chapter 20, verse 2, God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's God recounting His benevolence to them as the great king, why they should want to be in relationship with Him. It's a great declaration of grace He's about to give them the law, but before he gives them the law, he stresses the fact that you're in a relationship with me by grace, not by your works. And though the covenant with Moses is a law covenant, where law is obviously greatly emphasized, it's not a covenant of works because you and I don't merit our place with God. God graciously brings us into fellowship and then gives us the law to show our gratitude to Him. And all of this undergirds everything we'd say in our sermon and also the comfort given in the gospel when we confess our sins. God recounts His benevolence to us, which for you and me is undeserved favor because of Christ. The third uh, aspect of this treaty renewal is we observe that God sets forth the stipulations of the covenant, and this this takes the most space. And so we've just finished studying the main stipulations of the covenant, which are the Ten Commandments, and that's from chapter 20, verse 3, to chapter 17. Elsewhere they're called the Ten Words because they're succinct, clear principles and categories Through which, if we abide by them, we'll experience flourishing in our relationship with God and as human beings on the earth. And so we saw through the Ten Commandments what God spoke in this covenant renewal. The first four commandments, God is sacred and His worship is sacred. But then we move to the next six, which focuses on one another, that's saying love for neighbor is sacred. The fifth says the family is sacred. The sixth says life is sacred. The seventh says sex and marriage is sacred. The eighth says your possessions are sacred. The ninth says truth is sacred. And the tenth says your heart is sacred. Your interior world that no one sees, your contentment, that's sacred to God. What an elevated manner in which an image-bearer of God is designed to live. But in these stipulations of the covenant, God doesn't lead it, leave it in general categories because from chapter 21 through chapter 23, He applies it to specific concrete instances of daily life, your address, those naughty, difficult situations you and I find ourselves in. And so that portion 21 through 23 is called the book of the covenant in chapter 24. God gives us the principles in the Ten Commandments, and then He applies it in the book of the covenant. And it tells us that in our sermons, we don't just need to speak in a general way, but God's concerned with the detailed arrangement of your life day in and day out. He applies it in the stipulations of the covenant. And so we move towards that and we get to the preaching of the Word. Along with this, we, we, we see in this worship service that the Word requires a response. We're always tempted just to hear God's Word and leave it that way and walk out. But we see in this worship service that God's people aren't passive spectators, but they're actively involved in the worship service. They respond to His Word. And so we have a host of ways we respond, and not all of them are figured here, but we see one way that's prominent. For example, in chapter 19, verse 8, right at the beginning, when, God tells, when Moses tells the people what God wants, the people respond in, in verse 8, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They hardly know what God wants of them yet. He hadn't yet articulated the Ten Commandments. But what they show is the disposition of heart you and I are always to have. Before such a great and gracious God, we just say, command what you will. I want to obey you and know you. But then all this becomes even more specific in chapter 24 when the covenant is ratified. And so Moses reads in verse 3... He reads all the words of the Lord and all the rules of the Lord, the words of the Ten Commandments. The rules are the book of the covenant, the case laws. The people hear it and they respond with one voice. All the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. Then Moses does a sacrifice and reads the book of the covenant again. And in verse 7, the people respond even more emphatically. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. (laughs) And in doing that, they they embrace their relationship with God again. You and I are called to respond to God's word. And after we hear the sermon, that's why we have a creed or profession of faith. Calvin used to say about those creeds and professions of faith, he says, what we're doing as a people is saying, I want to live and die in the Christian religion and the Christian doctrine. This is who I am. I trust this gospel, and I want to renew my faith and repentance in God. And on the Lord's Day, we respond that way from the heart that says, I belong to God, and He belongs to me. Well, the fourth aspect of a treaty or a covenant renewal service is that God declares the blessings and curses, and He does so around a sacrifice And so we see this in a number of different ways. One one way is we see it in chapter 23, verse 20 through 33, and that's a real interesting passage because God promises to send this angel of the Lord. And who is this mysterious angel of the Lord that's going to go ahead of the people into the promised land like a hornet driving out their enemies ahead of them? It's the same person that appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It's really the second person, of the Trinity, the Son of God pre-incarnate, who's the shepherd of his people, even before he takes on flesh and comes for our redemption. And God is saying, "If you obey the angel of the Lord, you'll possess the land and be prosperous, if you disobey, you're going to be punished." Or down in verse 30, he says this, which is really beautiful. If you obey him, little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And that's a real nice uh, reflection of what happens in sanctification. It's that as we trust and walk with Jesus little by little through the course of our life, He helps us put off sin and grow in His image. But then he says, if you reject him and decide to follow the nations down at the end, the nations will be a snare to you. The world's going to get inside of you and cause you trouble. Don't do it. Blessings and curses. But this comes out even more as God institutes the sacrifices. And you see, since man fell, we can't enter God's presence without sacrifice. And God makes it resoundingly clear right here in this paradigmatic worship service. So in chapter 20, verse 24, right after the Ten Commandments, and this mountain is booming with thunder and with lightning and a devouring fire, and they've heard the ten words uttered by the voice of God himself, and the people are just overwhelmed Well, right then, in verse 24, God says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And the idea is that though you're promising to obey me, I know you can't do it. And so I'm going ahead and making provision for you. This altar represents my presence. You're going to disobey and be liable to the curses, but I want to bless you everywhere. So here's my altar, and I'm going to meet with you there and deal with your sin. And you're going to make burnt offerings, which is a dramatic offering because the whole sacrifice was consumed in fire. Nothing remained. And the smoke went up to God, and it symbolized that every vestige of your sin is done with. And like the smoke ascends into God's presence, even so, spiritually speaking, you ascend to God's presence and are fully welcomed and consecrated to Him. On the basis of that, you do A peace offering, which is distinct from the former in that only a part of the beast was sacrificed. The rest of it, you got to eat it and you ate it in God's presence and shared a meal with God, symbolizing that you were welcomed in the most intimate of ways with your heavenly Father. God institutes all that. And this is applied immediately in chapter 24 when we get down to the very ratification of the covenant. In verse chapter 24, 4 through 8, Moses builds that altar right off the bat. You can't do what you're promising. Here's the altar. The altar represents God meeting and dealing with sin. And by the altar, there's 12 pillars that represent the 12 tribes. It's like everybody needs cleansing. Then he sends the young men out to make the burnt offering and peace offering sacrifices. It's kind of an interesting idea. It seems that those young men are the firstborn sons that were redeemed when Israel came out of Egypt. And they represented to every family that every family needs redemption by the blood of the Lamb. And these young men, for the time being, act as priests. And they go out and make these offerings and bring the blood back to Moses. And it's real interesting because first, Moses sprinkles blood on the altar. God gets pride of place because God's making the initiative. And our basic need is to propitiate, turn God's anger from us. But then after the people commit... To renewing their covenant relationship with God, Moses takes that very blood and sprinkles it on the people. And so all this is d- dramatizing something very important for you today. And the first is, it's a bond in blood sovereignly administered, meaning first, it's a relationship that has life and death significance to you. It's of ultimate significance to you. But second, you're going to fail. And so the blood means that there is present value of the blood of Christ every time you stumble. That's why it's, it's sprinkled on the people after they commit to following God. Because he's saying you're going to try and you're going to fail. But when you do, you come And rest anew in the blood of the sacrifice that cleanses you from sin. Well, finally, oh no, before I go there. The blood ratifies the covenant. And so we always speak of the shed blood of Christ in our sermons. So verse 8 Moses says, "...behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words." And that word made is actually the word cut. Because it alludes to the Abrahamic covenant. When Abraham engaged in this covenant-making ritual of cutting animals in half, and ideally both parties were to pass between the animals and say, May I become like this animal if I don't abide by the covenant? But significantly with Abraham, only God passes between the animals, meaning I'm going to save you, Abraham, on my own honor, and may I become like these animals if I don't save you. And Moses is reflecting all of that. God's saying, through my shed blood, I'm going to redeem you and keep you close in covenant. Well, Jesus brings all that, all that into his work. And on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says these words in the supper. This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Through my shed blood, I'm sealing and ratifying the covenant. And you can be cleansed and welcomed in a relationship with God. And this leads to the fifth point. God lets you and me share a meal with him. That's how you seal a covenant, enjoy a covenant, enter into the intimacy of a covenant. And so we've already started talking about that, but just notice verses 9 through 11 in chapter 24. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders representing the people, they ascend halfway up the mountain. And halfway up the mountain, the text says, they saw the God of Israel. Literally, they fixed their gaze on the God of Israel. And amazingly, the text says, God doesn't lift a hand to strike the chief men of Israel. Why doesn't he lift a hand? Because they're covered with the blood of the sacrifice. And they can be in God's presence without being smitten by God. To some degree, on the basis of this covenant, they get to ascend the mountain and see a visible form of God. To some degree. But the focus is on this floor of sapphire and it's so transcendent that they can't even describe it they say as if it were a floor of sapphire like the heavens it's so amazing and they fixate on that floor why do they do that maybe they're looking at God through this floor maybe they're on top of this floor and they're so overwhelmed with God's glory they fall face to the ground that's all they can look at But to some degree, they gaze upon the beauty of God. And that's what an image bearer most desires. It's like Psalm 27. One thing I've asked of the Lord, this is what I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. Or Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Or John, one day we'll see him as he is, and when we see him as he is, we will be like him. What you desire is to gaze upon God. What the covenant of grace enables you to do, sealed in the blood of Christ, is to eat and drink in God's presence and set your gaze upon him with the assurance that one day you're gonna see him face to face. And that's what Revelation 19 says. The whole of Scripture goes towards a goal, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Scripture, a meal is the high point of intimacy and sharing of life. And that's what God's designed for us in the covenant of grace. And that's what we think about when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's the high point of the covenant renewal service. Well, there's one last thing just to mention It's implicit throughout. But since the fall, no man, no woman gets into God's presence without a mediator. And that's why throughout this service, so much attention is given to Moses. He runs up and down the mountain. Some people get halfway up the mountain, only Moses gets up on top and he enters the glory cloud and stays 40 days and 40 nights. God speaks to Moses and through Moses gives his words to the people. Why so much attention to Moses? In chapter. 20, after the giving of the law, the people are so overwhelmed. They said, God, you don't speak to us. We want to stand far off. Speak to Moses and then let Moses speak to us. Everything hinges upon Moses. Well, why is that? Except that Moses points to the greater Moses. Moses points to the greater mediator. Moses points to the angel of the Lord, the true firstborn, the real sacrifice, who's our worship leader each Lord's day. Who both covers us with his blood and carries us into God's presence. And so we go to Hebrews 12, that beautiful chapter. And if you look at Hebrews 12, the first part says, You haven't come to a mountain that's blazing with fire and makes you tremble and shake and be terrified. Your condition is better than Israel before the mountain. And why is that? Because you have the perfect mediator who gives you confidence and joy as you enter God's presence. Therefore, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because we have our true mediator, we don't just stand at the base of the mountain. We don't just go halfway up the mountain. We don't stand far off as Israel did in fear. We go all the way up to the top of Mount Zion where the resurrected Jesus is enthroned in glory, the Lamb glorified though slain, and you and I gather here on the Lord's day because really we're gathered there, spiritually speaking, in the Spirit and are welcomed into the very presence of God to behold Him through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredibly weighty and significant what truly happens on Lord's Day worship. And we respond to the gospel preached. We rest upon the sacrifice of Christ and we engage in a covenant meal. And in all of that, we're saying, I'm renewing my covenant with such a God of glory and of grace who desires to know me and to be in fellowship with me through Christ. And then you step out on Monday morning And you said, come what may, I'm safe and secure in the arms and the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've renewed my covenant for this week. What a blessing that God invites us to do that every week as a people and how truly significant and fulfilling is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ for image bearers of God designed to need God and worship God. God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.